0: Our text for this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 6 through 19. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I profit you, unless I speak to you either by way of revelation, or of knowledge, or of prophecy, or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones... How will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I shall pray with the Spirit, and I shall pray with the mind also. I shall sing with the Spirit, and I shall sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the Amen at the giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough. But the other man is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church I desire to speak five words with my mind that I may instruct others also, rather than ten thousand words in a tongue.
1: Father, I ask for your help as I take part of this text and try to apply it to our lives here. I ask that you'd give us ears to hear and you put an anointing on this effort that would make it life-changing for our common life together in prayer and in preaching. Let the reverberation, I pray, of the experience of this text go out to the ends of the earth for the glory of your name, I pray through Christ. Amen. Most of you know, I think that in virtually every language of the world where Christianity has taken root, one Hebrew word has been taken over, namely, Amen. You listen to a Chinese or Japanese, or Swahili, or Manica, or French, or German, or Russian, or Spanish, person pray, and you may only get one word, but the word you will probably get, if not Jesus, is Amen, or Amin, or Amen, or whatever the pronunciation is in that language. And the reason why this word is making its way throughout the world, into all the languages of the world, basically untranslated, is fundamentally because the New Testament, Greek, took it over from the Old Testament Hebrew, untranslated, but rather simply transliterated. So in Hebrew, the word is "Amen." And when it came into the Greek New Testament, they just used Greek letters to spell that sound. Amen. And that's the way it goes into every language now. Now that's significant. I wonder why God is doing that. It's a little, it's a little microcosm, I think, of what happens when Christianity arrives in a culture. When Paul, the Jew, but the apostle to the Gentiles arrives in Corinth where they spoke Greek, and it was a repository of Greek thinking and Greek philosophy and Greek everything. He brought with him, Amen. He also brought Maranatha, which is an Aramaic phrase for, Lord, come. And at least these two, he just put on them. Take these. He didn't translate amen, nai, which is the Greek word for yes, which is fully possible. Could have used that. It's used sometimes. It's used in the Revelation. Yes, amen. John does both, Greek and Hebrew. He keeps it and thus signifies no culture anywhere in the world is good enough for God. Every culture has its shortcomings, its weaknesses, its inadequacies, especially ours, and needs broadening vocabulary, broadening thought structures, broadening complexes of emotion, that are experienced out there owing to experiences and languages and other things that make that culture able to respond to God and something about God a little more adequately than we can. Which is why, going back a couple of Sundays, these languages, these 7,230 languages or so are not a mistake, nor are all the different cultures a mistake, and the gathering into a great worship assembly from every tribe and tongue, people and nation is not without theological significance for the glory of God. Because none of them is adequate by itself. And all of them together will perhaps come close to being adequate when we get together in the age to come. Well, I see the arrival of Amen in Corinth. As Paul's way of saying, you may think your Greek is sufficient, but it isn't. I'm going to bring along a piece of Hebrew and a piece of Aramaic, and I'm going to affix it onto your culture and onto your language, and we are going to use it, and I'm going to teach you how to use it. And so we'll ask in just a moment, well, what did he do with it? Why did he bring it? What's the point? But first of all, let's go back to the Old Testament and get the background. This word, this Hebrew word, amen, is used to mean a strong affirmation and agreement of what's been said. Either a curse or blessing or praise, prayer, preaching. For example, Deuteronomy twenty-seven sixteen: The Levites say, Cursed is he who dishonors father or mother. And all the people shall say, amen. Meaning... We take that. We take that. We believe that. We agree with that. Amen. Ezra 8, 5, and 6 has a beautiful scene of reverence and worship. Listen to the function of amen in this setting. Ezra opened the book of the law in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord God, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So Amen meant, yes, Ezra, he is great. Yes, he is awesome. Yes, he is wonderful. What you say is true. We agree. We embrace it. We join you. Amen is a way of of a congregation becoming becoming part of a prayer or part of a sermon offered up to God in worship Psalm 72:19 Blessed be his glorious name forever and may the whole earth be filled with his glory amen and amen So here the psalmist says it himself And yet, in that kind of corporate atmosphere, I can't but believe that he means for the congregation to join him when he gets to the end. And he says, Amen and Amen. Let's try that. Amen and Amen. Psalm 106, 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for everlasting, even to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. Now there... He calls upon the people to respond to his blessing of the Lord. So, in the Old Testament, the point of amen, built on this Hebrew word that means firm, reliable, true, yes. The point of it is, in response to what God is moving in a heart to say in prayer or in the word, the congregation or individuals in the congregation join and saying, we're part of that, we believe that, we like that, we love that, that's who we are. We want to offer that to you too, God. When he says that, we say that. And the dynamic of a prayer meeting and a sermon then become a corporate congregational act before the Lord. Now, here comes Paul to Corinth with this word in his head and in his heart. And the situation he's describing here in, in 1 Corinthians 14 is the situation where tongues, the gift of tongues, have been uh, abused and they've gotten out of hand. And he's trying to bring things back in order, not writing off the gift, but saying it's got to be ordered under some other priorities, which are a good bit higher. And the point of the text is edification. That is, the the building up and strengthening of the inner man by faith does not happen through amazement at miracles. It happens through understanding God. That's why in verse 19 he says, I would rather speak five words with my mind that the listener might be edified, then 10,000 miraculous words given by the Holy Spirit, which nobody can understand, but everybody will be amazed at. Amazement at miracles does not edify. Understanding with the mind who God is and what He's like strengthens a whole church can be built around the enthusiastic responses to miracles and be an incredibly weak church and look very dynamic on the outside and has no flavor, no trunk to the tree of leaves. So Paul is very vigilant here to make clear that understanding God is what builds a church and people without writing off the gifts and getting them into their proper order and place. Now, here he comes to the issue of amen. What's amen for? What did he do with it when he got there? Here he comes. He he is fluent in Greek. He Grew up in a Greek city. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. He doesn't need to use Hebrew or Aramaic. He doesn't stumble over his Greek sermons. They are clear. And all of a sudden he uses his Hebrew word. Amen. And these Corinthians, who've never heard this word before in their lives, said, what's that? What does he say? Well, we can get at it behind verses 15 and 16. Let's read these. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15. Well, what's the outcome then? If I'm going to pray with the Spirit, I will pray with the Spirit. And I will pray with my mind. In other words, I will give vent to that unintelligible response to the Spirit. And I will articulate it with my mental ability to form intelligible words. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. And then here's his rationale for that. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say, the Amen... At your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying. Now, the assumption here is there's a, there's a lot that's happened before this text. There's a lo- this text would make absolutely no sense had he not taught them about amen. This is a Greek-speaking church that hasn't a clue what the word amen means until a few months ago. And now he's assuming they know what it means. And he's using it as an argument for why they shouldn't pray publicly in an intelligible speech. So this is a word that has received attention in this church. They've got it so he can use it as an argument. So what must lie behind this text is some teaching that says something like, we're going to use the word amen. It's a universal word. I'm going to make it a universal word. I'm the apostle. This word's going everywhere around the world. This is going to unite cultures across seas. And the reason we're going to use it is so that when somebody prays in this church, you can join them during or at the end by saying, yes, amen. I agree with that. Amen. That's what I want to say. Amen. That's important. Amen to that. That's what he wants to happen. So the assumption here is that corporate responses verbally to public prayer is important. Whether you're in a group of two or three or four or ten or a group of 500. It's important. Now, what if somebody says to Paul, well, I hear you say that, but frankly... I don't care if anybody says amen to my prayers. I'm happy just to pray to God, whether, whether they respond or not. Or what if somebody says, well, that's not my tradition to say prayer, to say amen out loud during or after a prayer that somebody else prayed. We don't do that in my church. Or my family never did that. I, what would Paul respond? Here's the way I think he'd respond. I think he would say, this is not about personal taste. This is not about traditions of high church or low church. This is not about culture. Say, African American versus Swedish American culture. It's not about that. It's about God's will for corporate worship rooted in age-old biblical patterns of prayer and preaching, and captured in a word that crosses all cultures and thus frees every people to respond to prayer and preaching with their own heartfelt yes. Yes! Amen to that. I think he would say, getting a little closer to home, God is calling us not to be isolated, silent, encapsulated individuals in worship, privately coming, privately hearing, privately leaving, and nobody having a clue whether you resonated with anything that happened. What do you love this morning? What do you cherish? What do you long for? Is that a private thing? If you're more American than Christian, you say yes. If you're more Christian than American, you say no. That's a shared thing. My longings, my values, my priorities, my aches, my passions are for the body either to help me with or to share in my praise. I think Paul would say to that kind of objection, God is calling us at Bethlehem out of our cocoons of emotional isolation, our invisible, inaudible, unshared responsiveness. See, I can imagine many of you saying, Oh, I respond when people pray. I respond in here. And You never share it. It never comes out. That's not good. That's not good. I think Paul would say, it's God's will that we echo the excellence of God in preaching, and that we echo the longings of the saints in prayer. Let me give you one or two more reasons before I close with some practical applications of this. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, there's a reason for why we should make more of amen. 2 Corinthians one twenty says, For as many as are the promises of God in Christ, they are yes. In Christ they are Yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Let me just unpack that for a minute. It says two things. God's amen... To us is through Christ, whereby all the promises are purchased and warranted and secured so that they are ours in him. He is our yes from God to all the promises in our lives. God has said yes in Jesus. God said amen at the cross to all the promises of the Old Testament. Secondly, the text says, this is why at the end of our prayers we say Through you, Jesus, amen to God. We say amen, yes, back to God with our lives and with our voices and with our hearts. Because through you, Jesus, all of his yes came to us. You see the reciprocal amen here? God says yes to you in Jesus. You receive Jesus and all the promises in him. And you say amen to John. 6.35, Amen to Psalm 23, Amen to Romans 8.28, Amen to Psalm 84.11, No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Amen, Jesus, You bought that for me. Through You, God, I say, Amen, yes, to that promise. That's my life. Amen is a big word. It's just full of theology, full of God, full of promise full of faith, and it is supposed to be on our lips. Second reason that we should make much of this is what happens in Revelation, both in the preaching of John and the worship in heaven. For example, in Revelation 1-7, John says, Behold, He's coming. With the clouds, every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And then these two words, one in Greek, one in Hebrew. Yes. Amen. Now, the NASB translates it, so it is to be. And that's right. But in Greek, it's one word. Nigh. Amen. Yes. Amen. Greek, amen. And Hebrew, amen. And it's, it's John breaking into his own sermon. He got so excited about what he just said that he turned around and looked at it and said, Amen to that. Jesus is coming. Everybody's going to see him. There will be universal weeping when Jesus comes. Don't be in that number. Want the rocks to cry out and fall on them, lest they look at the Lamb Universal Weeping when the Son of Man comes and people realized, My God, it was true. It's too late. And he stops at a thought like that and says, Yes. Amen. Revelation twenty two twenty He who testifies to these things, namely Christ, says, Yes, I am coming quickly. To which John cries, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. There's the reciprocal yes and amen. Yes, I'm coming. We respond, yes, amen, come. That's what it's for. It's to create in a worship service reciprocity. A congregational yes, a congregational That's right, a congregational embracing so that there's not this big valley of uncertainty between what is going on out there in these hearts and everybody knows what's going on up here in this heart. It's not supposed to be that way. Worship arises as a corporate event, Because God has designed, through very simple little words, ways for the congregation to be a part of truth and exaltation. Revelation 5.14, we get the glimpse to what heaven's worship is like. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down. And worshipped. We're never going to be beyond this word. It's going to be a key word that draws us in, in heaven, and it should be a key word that draws us in here. So let me close with a few applications. My main exhortation to us as a church is, let's be natural and healthy. Natural and healthy. What do I mean? Here's what I mean. When you are talking to a friend, a spouse, a family, a little group of people, about something extremely precious to you, or something that is very painful to you, or something that is right now very frightening you, to you. And they stand there looking at you with no feedback. Nothing. That's unnatural and unhealthy. It destroys marriages. It hurts kids real bad. And it makes a church dysfunctional and prayer meetings boring as the day is long. It shouldn't be that way. And yet, that's the way many of our prayer meetings are and preaching and we've treated it as natural for too long. Picture it. A person We pray here on Friday morning. There were 21 of us praying on Friday morning. It was a wonderful time. And I'll tell you, that's a group you'd want to pray with. I love praying with the Friday morning group and all the other groups. But some are better than others. In a group, somebody prays. They start pouring out their heart to God for a loved one, for a sick loved one, or for a lost son, or... For revival to come, or for the pastors who are gathering here this weekend, have we been praying for weeks? And there's complete silence in the group. Before, during, and after this heart outpouring. Why? Why? Why is there silence? Well, If we had a little discussion right now, you'd probably give me 15 reasons for why. Family backgrounds, church traditions, personality types. It's 6.30 in the morning, what do you expect? And so on. Well, I don't want to catalog those reasons. I want to plead for another way. And so here's my suggestion. This is very practical. Tune in for two or three more minutes. As others are praying in your small group, or as I'm praying here or preaching, whisper, Amen. Amen. Or whisper, Yes. Yes. Or whisper, "Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm hmm. Or just mm. Or whisper. Do it. Do it, Lord. Come. Now, why do I say whisper? Well, just to make it a little easier for you. And because I'm not into anybody taking over the floor from whoever's praying. You're praying, you get, the, you get the floor. But, when prayer happens corporately as God means it to happen, there is background music. And I don't mean piano. I mean people whose hearts in a murmur, just a murmur. Yes, a man. Oh, do that. Yes, oh, that one. I like that one. Yes. My son, too. I'm, I'm weeping over him, too. Yes, that one. Oh, yes. And then we will pray as we ought. Let the aching of the prayer become your aching and give vent to it. It's dysfunctional to feel deeply. And not to express your feeling when others are expressing their feeling deeply. Finally, so with preaching. This is an invitation and an exhortation. My preaching, and I'm just going to pass over this quickly because I'm going to preach on preaching next week. Because in our series on worship, it would be unwarranted not to ask the question, Why does preaching assume such a huge role in this service? So we'll address that issue next week. But in a nutshell, preaching for me is expository exaltation. It is worship. There is much prayer about it. My definition of preaching would be heralding of good news about God in Christ by a person who is called, sent, and anointed by God to make biblical truth plain and beautiful and powerful. That's preaching. Now, when that happens, in a congregation, there should be a reverberation in the mouths of God's people, else it is unnatural and unhealthy. This is not a lecture hall. This is a moment of communion with God when I'm in this pulpit. I am communing with the Lord in the things I love about the Lord that I've seen in His Word. I am reveling in them. I am enjoying them. I happen to be sharing them and commending them. And if you don't express when they hit something strange and unhealthy, and there are probably reasons for it, but I'm pleading with you, to overcome it. A wife who comes home at night, finds her husband already home and the kids, he's reading the newspaper, and she has just seen the most glorious sunset she's ever seen. And she is brimming and she walks in and says, you won't believe what I just saw coming down 35W. It is magnificent. Come here, look at this. And they just stare at her and look back down at their newspaper. That's a dysfunctional family that will deeply wound her. Many marriages are being killed by this. And many churches are weak and not offering God what He deserves. Four thousand years, the Word has been available I'm not asking for a shouting corner. I'm not asking for disruption or distraction. We're a thousand miles away from that happening. I'm asking, is anybody home? Authenticity is what we want in this church more than we want any show. If it isn't real, don't say. I could get it. I could get it. Amen? I got one. See? <laughs> but if I hadn't said I could get it, I could have got it. I don't want it that way. I don't want it that way. I want it to be real. I want to free you up. To just whisper what you feel. And the Lord will do the rest. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I believe that you want from us not a preacher in his isolation doing his exulting, but a people corporately bound together in truth, seeing it, feeling it, understanding it, loving it, exulting in it, and appropriately, authentically giving expression to it. So that this event called worship, corporate worship on Sunday morning, happens together and not in little isolated individuals. Oh God, work this thing, I pray, in our small groups. Work it in our prayer meetings. Work it in our worship. Work it in our families for the good of our children and the good of our marriages. Work this, Lord. Oh God, You are our great Amen to us. And we want our lives to be an Amen to all that You wrought in history. In Jesus' name I pray.